0: On Saturday, January 21st, five 56 passenger buses carrying around 280 people departed from our parking lot here at UCF for the Women's March in Washington. It was an unforgettable day of peaceful protests amidst 500,000 of your closest friends in the streets of D.C. If you add in all the sister marches, the total rises to more than three million people in the streets acting for peace and justice. I'm grateful for the opportunity to have attended that march, but as successful as the Women's March was on many levels, it's also important to reflect on what it did and what it did not accomplish on a strategic level. It did not change any laws, at least not immediately. It did not cause any regime change, for example. It did, however, help many people feel less isolated and alone, and it gave many people who had little to no previous experience with activism a taste of what it feels like to act for peace and justice. And that those first steps taken that day, I do think, are part of what has cataly- helped catalyze an increased amount of sustained activism uh, for many people who have never written their senators or visited their representatives um, previously. Now, around, around the time of the Women's March, I shared that two of the books that I was finding most helpful for such a time as this were This is an Uprising, how nonviolent um, Revolt is Shaping the 21st Century by Mark Engler and Paul Engler, as well as The End of Protest by Michael White. Drawing insights from those two books, I want to invite us to reflect on what history has shown us about both what does and what doesn't work in creating social change. Told in retrospect, history is often taught in a way that makes events seem inevitable, whereas at the time, the future was typically unclear to all concerned. History can also be taught in a way that focuses on just a few leaders or just a few turning points instead of the 10,000 or more people and causes and moving parts that were actually the complex, messy reality um, behind why anything ever happens. When many of us remember uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, for example, some of the first events that come to mind are the ways that he helped lead the civil rights movement to great victories in Montgomery and Selma. But celebrating only those highlights covers over all the years of organizing by countless people, You know, all the people in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, you know, knocking on doors and building relationships, and all the reasons why people even bothered to show up in Selma and Montgomery in the first place and all the years of organizing when success was far from assured. For instance, in March 1965, the Selma to Montgomery marches catalyzed the Voting Rights Act in the following months, but if we wind back the clock a little more than two years previously, the path to that victory was far from assured. In January 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. had actually just turned 34, And it had been seven years since the success of the 1956 Montgomery bus boycott. Moreover, they had just received a demoralizing defeat in Albany that most of them, in reflecting on it, said, it looks like all we really accomplished in Albany was getting ourselves arrested. So one lesson is perseverance, that we need resistance and resilience for the long haul, that the struggle for peace and justice is often measured not in hours or days, but in years. At the same time, we should keep in mind the saying that one definition of insanity, you all know it, right? To keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So it's not just a matter of years spent doing ineffective things, right? It's about years spent trying to find out what actually works. So we should continually discern the best methods for our time, for our energy, for our resources. Two major categories for social change as far as discerning what that might be. One is community organizing. That's focusing on building long-term institutional structures that build these constituencies that can be leveraged for power, that you can you know, go up and tell representatives if you vote this way, we can deliver this many votes or thus and such or we can do this. So long-term community organizing. The other way is disruptive uprisings. Short-term mass protests, demanding immediate change. You know, the film network said, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. So we're open, of course, to using both of these methods here at UUCF. I've already talked about participating in the Women's March, that uprising, and some of you have heard me say before that one of my dreams for this congregation is part- partnering together over time with uh, other faith communities to jointly hire a full-time congregational-based community organizer to help us work together on, more effectively on issues like affordable housing, racial, racial justice, and others. A prime example of long-term network building is the work of Saul Alinsky, as represented in his classic book, Rules for Radicals. But the subtitle of that book is actually crucially important. It's a practical primer for realistic radicals. Because Alinsky didn't want, just want change, he wanted to know what actually works. It was written in 1971, the year before he died, tragically at age 63 from a heart attack, but it contains much hard-won wisdom from his years as a community organizer. Like organizers in the labor movement, Alinsky's approach focuses on person-by-person recruitment, careful leadership development, creation of institutional bodies that can leverage the power of their members over time. So not just showing up one day, but showing up consistently over time. Uh, Often you'll hear Alinsky model people talk about like the stoplight example, taking something like a place where a stoplight is broken or where you need a stoplight and getting people together and fixing that to give people a taste of actually creating concrete change uh, and then building on that concrete measurable change. The other major type of short-term mass protest of disruptive organizing are embodied in examples like the Women's March that we've already already talked about, but also ex- more extended examples like the Arab Spring or like Occupy Wall Street. Each of those uprisings are inspiring um, when you just look at them and some of what went into them, but it is also important to be honest about the long-term results. To take the Arab Spring, for example, by summer 2013 it had become evident that the Arab Spring uprisings, which began in December 2010, had failed to produce democracy in everywhere except where they began, in Tunisia. Egypt's first democratic government had been overthrown by a military coup that was ostensibly popularly supported. Syria had descended into a brutal and protracted civil war that continues to this day. Libya has simply fragmented. It has two mutually hostile elected governments, one in Tripoli and one in Tobruk, while various militias control different sectors of the country. Or to consider Occupy Wall Street. There were some actually positive, unintentional consequences that came out of Occupy Wall Street. Things like Occupy demonstrated the efficiency of using social, ge- social means to quickly spread awareness of a movement. They shifted the political debate on the fair distribution of wealth. They trained a new, distrib- a new generation of activists uh, ranging from, you know, that had later got involved with campus uh, fossil fuel divestment and the Black Lives Matter movement. But we also need to be honest that Occupy may have done those positive things, but that's not what they set out to do. They set out to end the influence of money on politics. That hasn't happened. They sought to overthrow, in their words, the corporatocracy of the 1% and to solve income inequality. Those were the stated goals, and they were not achieved The overall lesson, though, is not a false um, dichotomy of choosing between either short-term mass protest or long-term community organizing. Uh, It's strategically using all the available methods um, to affect the greatest possible change at any given time. So if you're interested, continue consider attending one of those upcoming mass protests, especially if you've never been to a protest march before. You know, go to the website of our homepage, fredericku.org. Click on Climate March or Science March, and um, sign up for one of the buses that are leaving right here. We'll take you to the march and bring you back. As long as you get there, by the time we're ready to say we're leaving, right? Uh, so, uh, but I also encourage you to consider getting involved, to not just go to protests, but I also encourage you to get involved with one or more um, networks that are trying to mobilize people for long-term change on an issue or issues that you're deeply concerned about. If you want to know what group might be a good fit for you, let me know, and I'm glad to help with that discernment. Overall, though, in working for social change, one crucial principle to keep in mind is from the second sentence of Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. He's writing about the ways that governments are not naturally occurring. We created them, and we can uncreate them. This whole idea that he was writing against, like the divine right of kings, he was saying, it's just not so, right? Governments are fictions, and we, decide, we choose to live by these fictions, but we don't have to. His explicit words are that governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. This view is sometimes called the social view of power, and the whole paradigm can begin to shift if people in the society begin to withdraw their consent to be governed by unjust governors. If civil servants stop carrying out the functions of the state, if merchants suspend economic activity, if soldiers stop obeying orders. In the case of extremely repressive regimes, that's precisely when you know you have won. When the dictator gives the order to uh, to the police officers or to the soldiers to shoot on the unarmed, nonviolent protesters, and when they refuse to do it, that's when you see the dictators board the helicopter to get out of the country. Ultimately, even though even the most extreme dictators are only one person, and in most cases they're just using words to give their orders, right? They're not doing them themselves, and that's where withdrawing consent can be so powerful. That the power of a dictator can begin to rapidly reign if people disregard, delay, or sabotage an order's implementation. That's what Dr. King meant when he said that non-cooperation with evil is equally as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. That listening to your conscience and not cooperating with evil it is equally as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. To say more about what forms of civil resistance uh, and what they might take, allow me to introduce you to Gene Sharp, for those of you who don't know about him already. Through extensive study and research, uh, Sharp put together a handout on 198 methods of nonviolent action that's in the insert your order of service. You know, you don't have to read it all now, but his idea was to um, open people's awareness of all the different tools that you can have in your pocket for bringing about nonviolent um, social change. Part of his inspiration uh, for compiling this resource was his experience serving a little more than nine months in prison, being a conscientious objector to the Korean War. He later came to believe that his non-cooperation with the draft system actually did nothing to rid us of the war system and only served to keep his sense of personal integrity together. And he was glad he did that, He's glad he listened to his conscience, but he wanted to do more. He wanted to say, how do you actually change the system long term? So you start with yourself, but he didn't want to end with himself. He wanted to start with himself, but then build up from there. Over time, his research and writings have helped inspire and um, equip democracy movements around the world, earning him the nickname the Machiavelli of nonviolence. He's best known for his short book, From Dictatorship to Democracy. It weighs in at a little more than 100 pages, is available free online, and has been translated into more than 28 languages. Sharp is clear that both for himself and many other proponents of civil resistance, that at least speaking for himself, uh, he's actually not an idealist. If if he thought violence would work in bringing about peace and justice, he'd be for violence, but he actually is fairly convinced it's usually not the most effective method because studies have shown that nonviolent activism is often the most effective method for advancing democracy in the face of authoritarianism. Because in most cases around the world, the authoritarian regime is the one with vastly superior military power. So violent insurrection is usually put down quickly, brutally, and with deadly force. But nonviolent approaches at least have the possibility of winning the hearts and minds of people that are in those positions of power just under that level of dictator. Indeed, political scientists have found that nonviolent movements worldwide were twice as likely to succeed as violent ones in recent decades. Over the past 50 years, nonviolent campaigns have grown both more numerous and more successful, even under brutal authoritarian regimes, whereas violent insurgencies have grown increasingly rare, rare and unsuccessful. As I said last week, there is a lot of bad news these days. The growing threat of climate change, the undermining of human rights, and a global tilt toward authoritarianism. That's not a movement, but that is, we're starting to tilt that way, which is a, you know, a cause for we need to be aware. Two days ago, on the 100th anniversary of our country entering World War I, our military bombed Syria. Speaking for myself, I'm not a pacifist, and I, you know, I do honor the men and women who chose to serve in our armed forces. But I also believe that military service, the military force should follow just war doctrine, that it should respect international law, and that we should use diplomacy and civil resistance you know, as long and as far as possible, long before using legal force. But even when political situations seem intractable, studies of the greatest historical movements for social change remind us that almost always the next great social movement, it's invisible right before it erupts. You just can't see it coming until that straw that broke the camel's back and it erupts. While those lines, I invite you to hear an excerpt from a powerful speech by a Sikh American civil rights activist in response to such a time as this. I'll link to the full six-minute speech. It's, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's very powerful and moving. And so I encourage, I'll link to it in the manuscript version of this sermon that goes on our website. Uh, but Speaking of her fears around raising a brown-skinned son in this country at this time, she writes, To me, the future in many ways seems dark. But my fate dares me to ask, what if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America is not dead, but a country still yet waiting to be born? What if the story of America is one long, ongoing labor? What if all the parents and grandparents who came before us who survived genocide and occupation, slavery and Jim Crow, racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, political oppression and sexual assault, what if they are standing behind us now and our ancestors are whispering in our ears, you are brave enough? You are brave enough for this moment. What if this is our great transition before we birth a new future? And she says, remember the wisdom of the midwife. First you have to breathe. Start with breathing. But then you have to push. And she says, here's the truth. If you don't push, you'll die. So what then might it mean to breathe and then to push? within our spheres of influence. It might mean lawyers taking on pro bono work for a cause that they believe in. We saw that powerfully in the wake of the Muslim man. Lawyers showing up at airports and saying, let me help you lawyer up. Musicians writing songs that celebrate protesters in the street. It may mean teachers bringing lessons into the, about the cause into their classroom. It may mean professional athletes and celebrities help spreading memes about justice. Uh, It may mean store owners putting signs of support in their windows. What are your social spheres of influence? What are your professional spheres of influence? How can you take one more step toward acting for peace and justice into your spheres of influence? To breathe and then to push. What next actions might we take individually or together for peace and justice? I invite you to carry that discernment into our practice of flower communion this morning, to continue to let your mind free associate and um, plan. This annual UU tradition reminds us of both the importance and the risk of struggling to build a world with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. Flower communion originated in 1921, Laura spoke a little bit about this, in a Unitarian congregation in Prague, which at the time was the capital city of Czechoslovakia, it is now the Czech Republic. It was under the leadership of its minister, Norbert Czapik, and at that point it grew into the largest Unitarian congregation in the world with membership in 1932 of more than 3,000 people. And in 1941, Chopic was arrested by the Nazis on charges of treason, and a year later he was executed at Dachau for um, standing up for freedom and for liberty and for individualism in the face of fascism. I do think it's important to remember the saying that we don't fight fascism because we're going to win necessarily. We fight fascists because they're fascists. And the continuation of flower communion today affirms the heart of that original ritual, that as no two flowers are alike, so too no two people are alike, yet each has a contribution to make. Together, the different flowers form a beautiful bouquet. Our common bouquet would not be the same if any one of us were absent or if any individual flower were missing, and thus it is with the beloved community of our congregation. In a few moments, we'll sing together a hymn of resistance and resilience, number 1028 in your teal hymnal, Fire of Communion. We'll then um, sing uh, hymn 305 De Caloris in the gray hymnal, including the Spanish verse, which we'll sing as the equivalent of verse 4. Once we start singing, I'm going to invite you to start coming forward row by row, starting with the front and moving toward the back. Don't be shy. There's a lot of you. So once the singing starts, come on down. Now, during the singing, each individual is invited to take a flower that's different from the one you brought, symbolizing the ways in which we both give and receive from this congregation. And take a few moments, once you're back in your seat, to really notice the particular beauty of that flower that you brought, to see how it might be speaking to you today. If you didn't bring a flower, please do go ahead and come forward. Many people bring bouquets that have been doing this for a while, so that we uh, usually have plenty. If we get through both hymns, we'll just keep singing De gloris" till everyone has time to come forward. But we'll we'll probably get there long before there. Then, so as we practice flower communion again, I invite you to continue discerning what part you individually or we collectively might be called to play in taking that next concrete, measurable step for peace and justice. That we might do our part to ensure the continual blooming of diverse, beautiful life on this one earth. Please rise. Say just a few more words about that oscillation and the importance of sort of both poles of the mass uprising demanding short-term change and the long-term kind of community organizing, institution building. Sometimes so, uh, scholars who study social change call that the, that you need both the whirlwind and you need the discipline. And often, and they kind of go back and forth. For the, whirl, for the whirlwind to even happen in the first place, there's usually been some people doing some work that means people pay attention to have that straw that brought the camel's back happen. And if you don't have that kind of discipline in place, Either the whirlwind will be mismanaged and and funnel out or you'll end up, you know, having the Arab Spring and then getting another dictator right back in place, a new pharaoh. And if you think about some of the things that lead to the whirlwind, you you really can't predict in advance what it's going to be. You know, for example, Rosa Parks was not the first person of color to refuse to give up their seat on the bus. But she what she ended up being the straw that broke the camel's back. But Rosa Parks, of course, wasn't just a tired seamstress, right? She was the secretary of the NAACP. She had been to the Highlander training for nonviolent activism, the Highlander Center, and so you know, and continued to live quite a fascinating and interesting and rebellious life, um, both before and after the Montgomery bus boycotts. You know, you can look at what what was it actually in the in Selma and Montgomery that that actually changed the hearts and minds of people? It actually was. Um, the the dogs being released and the water hoses and and frankly the martyrdom of four little girls in a bombing that that's what it took to finally create the whirlwind that that demanded change uh, Michael Brown not the first um, you know pers- first or last person of color to be unjustly killed but it was that was the moment but part of what happened was there had been activists you know lobbying for a long time and were ready to catalyze that whirlwind into the Black Lives Matter movement. Occupy Wall Street was just a a fairly marginal thing until a video was taken of a police officer um, pepper spraying a a series of women in Oakland, California, and that's what catalyzed um, widespread attention to Occupy, and all of a sudden you had encampments and and people really paying attention. So, you know, I encourage you to... to begin paying attention to these moments of whirlwind but also the discipline on on both sides of infrastructure building, so both the short-term and the long-term and the, the conversation between them. The other piece I wanted to mention is that I'd, I'd said previously about the potential of doing a, um, a dystopian fiction book club this summer, and I am open to doing that. So there'll be, you know, if that, if that would not be helpful to you, don't come. It's fine. I totally understand. But I, I've heard from a, quite a few of you that it actually would be helpful for you. And to me, reading these novels with um, a lens of hope, of looking for those places, of finding hope even in the darkest circumstances and what works for... Um, for following your conscience, even in dire times, uh, to me that's ultimately what these books are about. So, um, so if you want to start reading one or more of them, you just read one if that would be helpful to you or particularly interested. But it'll we'll start with George L. Orwell's 1984. It'll be some Sunday in June. I'll let you know soon that you can just stay afterwards if that would be meaningful to you, and we'll just spend about an hour talking about it. Uh, in July, we'll do Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, and in August, we'll do Octavia Butler's uh, Either Parable of the Talents and or Parable of the Sower. I haven't totally decided, but um, if that would be meaningful to you, go ahead and start reading one or more of those books, and I think it'll be some r- interesting and fruitful conversation. So the final piece I'll say is that uh, Nick actually reminded me of a Mexican proverb that I'd forgotten about that I think is quite um, pertinent for such a time as this as well as on the Sunday of Flower Communion, and it goes like this. When they buried us, they didn't know we were seeds. When they buried us, they didn't know we were seeds and would come to bloom, would come to sprout, would come back in the spring. So as you go from this place, begin with controlling what you can control and continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste and touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go into.